Hi, I'm Ryan, the ectoplasmic rules guy. I'm Ben, the contemplative player. I'm Helen, the enigmatic storyteller. I'm Jared, the Devil's Bargain Game Master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. We bring to you two super exciting things tonight. The first one, kind of out of the bag already, we have a new co-host, Helen. Helen is absolutely amazing. I am super excited to have her join the podcast. So, in my mind, players generally break down into two groups. One is the player who is just into it but here to let things slide and like feel the vibe and that is ben we have that player hey yo podcast and then there's the other player who is super excited who's always doing stuff before the session and that is helen i can tell that helen likes a game or a splat or a setting because as soon as she reads one that she likes, she immediately comes to me and says, so I may or may not have made a character and have a multi-page backstory if you want it, you know, just in case. Um, and that's awesome. Uh, a lot of the coolest moments I have had in storytelling with my group have involved Helen because she is always coming up with her own ideas and sending to them to me ahead of time and I can like merge my ideas and hers and it's a really great thing. Does anybody else want to say nice things about our super awesome new co-host? Yeah, I mean, she's uh, probably the most earnest person I've played games with. She takes it very seriously, but in a fun way. She always brings her A-game to the table and... Yeah. It's, it's very rare to meet players who are both serious about the game and not jerks, and that's Helen, and yep. it's very exciting. Exactly. And she also has a good understanding of the mechanics and kind of uh, the, the flow of the game. Uh, I have to like Helen, contractually. <laughs> um, mm, uh, I, I talk with Helen uh, a lot. Uh, I bounce ideas off her. I talk about games with her all the time. So, so really, for me, uh, not much is changing here besides uh, she's going to be uh, giving her opinion uh, on, our, on our podcast. And the second super exciting thing that we have for you today is we're going to be talking about a game that's been out for about a, two years, I believe, uh, called Blades in the Dark. Yeah, Jared. Make a few clocks. We will get to clocks. There are many <laughs> clocks in our future. I feel like they should call the GM the Time Master in this game. Ooh, That's that actually works. a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. That is a good yeah. idea. It fits the setting of the game, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're going to be mostly talking about mechanics today, but in order for that to make sense, we're going to do a super brief setting overview. And then next podcast will be entirely about the setting. So, right. Ryan, why don't you give us that overview? So, the very brief overview of the setting for Blade in the Dark. It takes place in a world in a Victorian London-esque city, by default, called Duskval. Except, a thousand years ago, something went horribly wrong. The sun was extinguished, or broken, or transported someplace else, or whatever. So, daytime doesn't happen anymore. Also, everyone who dies comes back as a ghost. Everyone. This has led to a lot of changes, as you might imagine in the setting. There's whole industries about how to deal with ghosts to make sure they don't go mad and start killing people to keep them out. Magic is pretty common, uh, and it's starting to be combined with technology. Also, people go out and hunt 
horrible demon whales called leviathans and bring their blood back to use in that magic technology that they have and that's a a very brief overview. In this game, you play a gang of scoundrels. The exact type is up to you, but you do heists or assassinations or robberies or whatever crime to improve your lot in life because no matter what, you're always going to be a scoundrel. There's no upper mobility. That's how the system is set up against you. One of the things I really like about the system mechanically, the GM is there almost exclusively to help guide the story. The GM rarely rolls. There is only one circumstance during which the GM actually makes a roll and it's called a fortune roll. And we'll talk about that later. So the basic premise of the system is you will roll a certain number of D6 based on your rank in a trait, which is either an attribute or a skill, and you take the single highest die you roll. A six is a full success. Multiple sixes are critical. A, a full success is you succeed. Nothing bad happens. You just, you, you get the thing you want. A four or a five is a partial success. You succeed, but there are consequences. And one to three is a bad outcome. You don't succeed. Something bad happens. Or you can succeed, but something real bad happens. Potentially, potentially. But but in, in general, it's the... It's the most negative outcome. It is a bad outcome. It is a bad outcome. Even if you get what you want, it comes with bad consequences. There, um, are, there is some way in which the stakes continue to go up. The, the drama increases some new terrible thing is revealed, etc. And so what's great about this is even on the most basic of roles, even a thing where you're only getting one role, you have a 50% chance of some kind of success, even if most of that success is going to come with some drawbacks. That's actually a, a really big part of the system and something they talk about a lot in the book. It's the system really wants to set you up as you are a down on your luck scoundrel in over your head. But despite that, uh, you can still accomplish great things. You're going to get hurt doing it, but you can still have a 50% chance, even on a single die, to get something done. Like we said, there are two different things, two different types of traits. There are attributes and action ratings. Action ratings are what would be called a skill in any other game. They're called an action rating because they tend to be more general here. It's not just stealth. The action ratings are way more general than skills in other games. The, like Their equivalent action ratings would be things like Prowl. And so you might use that for stealth. You might use that for hunting somebody. They're just a wider margin. Like Instead of academics and occult, all being separate skills, you have study. It's, it's designed to let your character be more of a generalist and to not have things be so nitty gritty. And that is going to be a common theme throughout these mechanics and even the, into the setting somewhat. Unlike in most games, uh, what they call attributes in Blades and Dark are really the categories that your traits fall into your action ratings. For each action that you have a, a dot in, you add one to the attribute for that category. And what they're used for in Blades and Dark is something I've never seen in any other system. Your attributes are used to resist bad things happening to you, consequences. And generally what will happen is if you fail a roll or you succeed or you partially succeed, the GM will tell you a consequence happens. Perhaps when you're duel with someone, you get a partial success. So you manage to stab them, but they also stab you, take a wound. And you can say like, I don't, I don't want that. I'm in the middle of a duel. I really can't afford that. So you 
do a resistance roll and you roll your attribute to make sure that doesn't happen to you. We're going to talk about those resistance rolls in a second, but before we get to that, each of your 12 action ratings are broken down into one of the three attribute categories. So the highest your attribute can be is is four. So if you have a, a dot in each of those four action ratings, you will have a four in that attribute. And this balances because the highest you can have in any of those actions is also with mastery four dice. An important thing before we really get into exactly how you do the rolls and how the give and take of the system works is you need to understand stress. Stress is a resource that your character has that you expend to do cool stuff. They they describe it as a measure of your willpower and your grit and your gumption and your piss and vinegar. I believe they say it's what separates you from everyone else, from the, yeah. right. the standard masses. It's what makes you a protagonist. Yes. You can use it to, you can spend it to push yourself to just give you an extra die to any roll at all, which means even if you have no skill rating on something, you can just spend this point of stress and say, I roll a die, which gives me a 50-50 chance to get some kind of success. You can, as I mentioned before, you can make a resistance roll to avoid a consequence happening to you. And a lot of abilities and particularly flashbacks, which we'll talk about later, use stress. So it's really even more than how much harm you take from from wounds stress is really what keeps you going and what, what lets you do things in this system yeah unlike a lot of systems where you'll have you know 40 50 health in DD, there are three markers on your health track before you're dead yep and so you if you get harmed you will almost always choose to lower that consequence by making a resistance roll and taking the stress so like we said, uh, the resistance role is different in that you can choose to make it or not, depending on whether or not you're willing to accept the consequence. Or the storyteller can tell you before you even get to take your action, depending on what kind of action or the, the significance of what you're doing, that you have to make a resistance role first. Uh, and the resistance role will be using, like we mentioned before, one of those three attribute ratings, depending on the type of action that, that that's going on in the scene. When determining how much stress you take when attempting to resist consequences, the base stress that you would take is six. And then you take the number of dice that you are rolling for your resistance. So let's say it's three. You roll your three dice and pick the highest number. So if, you, if your highest number is a four, you're going to take the six base stress minus the four you rolled, so you will take two points of stress. What's cool is if you roll a six here, not only do you take no stress damage, you actually get one point of your stress back because you did a super duper awesome thing. And it's important to note that this means that this roll sort of always succeeds. If you decide to make your resistance roll, you will at least lessen the consequence that happens to you, or even more likely, unless it's incredibly serious, just it won't happen at all. You'll take the stress instead. Yeah, and it's really cool. It will always reduce the consequences, but it might move your character closer to no longer being a character. It's a real good push and pull mechanic, especially as we'll see throughout this as things evolve during a heist. 
there's going to be a few things that you're going to use throughout a heist, like stress and later equipment we'll talk about, to, uh, to navigate your way through the obstacles. All right, now that we've talked about how to avoid getting hurt, why don't we talk about how you actually do things in the system? And I actually think this is very neat. And very sure. different, too. It's pretty unique. The player describes what they want to do, then they pick the action rating that they want to roll. This is unique in that the player always gets final choice of the action rating they want to roll. The GM can decide if that's possible and how bad the, the failures of consequence are and how effective a success might be. But in the end, they want the onus of how you're choosing to do what you're doing to be on the player. As a GM, I can decide, hey, the action rating you are trying to do, you know, prowl doesn't really apply here, so it's going to be harder for you to succeed. But if the player is like, cool, that's fine with it. I still want to do prowl, then they can do it. Right. This is one of the situations in which it is important that everyone at the table is really on the same page about what kind of story you want to tell and the function of the mechanics within that story. Yeah, that's going to come up over and over again. Uh, <laughs> We'll talk about this more later, but I really love this system. But you have to have a group that is used to playing together, I think, in order for this system to really work. Everyone has to be on the same page. I wouldn't want to play this with a bunch of randos at a con. See, I definitely, I, I, I agree. I don't know that I would play it with randos, but I will say that I think that it could be, particularly with how they wrote the book, it could be very accessible if you were trying to introduce new, new players to the system. Um, I agree. Oh, I think that this is the ultimate beginner game, and we'll, I think we'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the, these very vague mechanics are why I think it's so great for that. It, it, oh. They are very vague, but they're just toothy enough. And so exactly. one of the things that gives exactly. it tooth, I really like the way you put that, Helen, is there's a mechanic called trading position. The player can choose to make the consequences of failing worse to make their success more effective if they succeed or all. So, so they can choose, no, I'm going to put myself in a risky position, so if I fail, it's really bad, to raise the scale of my potential success. Or you could be very conservative and lower the consequences of failure, but be less effective if you succeed. So once you've decided what you want to do, you roll your selected action rating. They're designed to, to overlap here. If you want to fight somebody, there are two primary action ratings that could each be used for this. You could have wreck, which is my favorite name for an action rating. You can just wreck stuff or skirmish, those both are likely to apply to a combat. So the key thing here, and really the meat of how this works, is there are three things to consider. There is your position, which is the, the situation you're in in the game. If you are on a rooftop hidden with your rifle about to shoot someone, that is a different position than pulling out your pistol in the middle of a bar fight. That informs a lot more of what's going on. Specifically, it informs the consequences of a failure and how a Effective you will be if you succeed. They call these three positions controlled, risky, and desperate. On average, most of your roles will be risky. Controlled is you are at great advantage. Even if you fail, not much bad is going to happen. Risky is it's 50-50. If you succeed, it's, it's good. If you fail, it's not good. And desperate is exactly what it sounds like. You're reaching beyond your means. If you're in a sword fight with three master swordsmen, you're in a desperate 
position, right? Right. For the example that I used, if you're hidden on a rooftop with your rifle about to shoot someone, that is a controlled position. No one knows you're there. The person is unaware that they're in danger. The worst case that's probably going to happen, like you completely miss. Like, okay, well, you missed your shot and people are now aware of you. So your consequences, your position changes. People are now aware of you. They're probably, if they have guns, they're gonna start shooting back. The guy you're trying to kill is going to take cover, but you're not going to take immediate harm or consequences or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, you're probably just gonna if have you're to. In a, right, if you're in a bar fight and you pull a pistol and you miss, you didn't hit the guy. You may hit someone else that you didn't want to hit. And now everyone knows you have a gun and you're probably the center of attention. Not only is the position changing, but you're probably gonna get hurt by someone else too. In addition, they talk about effectiveness in the system, which is how possible is it for you to do the thing you are trying to do? That is effective by a number of things that we don't really need to go into detail on other than it's a very intuitive system. For instance, the example they give in the book, if you are trying to knock down a castle with a hammer, that's just not going to happen. The thing is too big for what you are trying to do to work. There's there's no way that you can succeed. If you are trying to knock down a flimsy wooden door with same sledgehammer, your likelihood of success is much higher. But now we get to talk about the best part of the game. <laughs> You're not wrong. The Devil's Bard, essentially. GM offers the player a bonus die for a concept. Anyone at the table can suggest the deal itself, uh, which is what makes it super fun. So everyone can be involved in any situation. You get in a rough spot and your friends at the table one of them comes up with a really creative solution, but they make sure that there's some collateral damage is gonna happen. You're gonna hurt an innocent, or you're gonna make a ton of noise and alert all the guard. Um, something like that is gonna happen, and it's it's just great. <laughs> yeah, so, so they really want anybody to be able to pitch this. It's supposed to be a true bargain, too. Like, you can go back and forth. If you decide to take it, you get the bonus die, which remember, you're rolling dice and taking the highest. So a bonus die is a pretty significant bonus. Yeah. Um, but the the consequence, whatever it is, happens regardless of whether you succeed or fail. So like one of the examples in the book is someone's about to alert the guards and you go and you stab them with your knife. And the devil's bargain the player took is, well, regardless of whether you stop them or not, the devil's bargain is you kill them and you get blood all over your clothes. Uh, the question <laughs> is, do you manage to stop them from alerting the guards or not before you kill them? Regardless, either they alert the guards and now you're standing there over a dead body covered in blood, or they don't manage it, but now you're in a dark alley covered in blood. One of my favorite examples they give in the book is you exist in this world and there are a bunch of factions, there are a bunch of gangs that your crew of thieves will have relationships with over the course of your game and it will go up and down. So you might get this extra die to do this thing, but you have to offend one of these factions in order to do it. Or, you know, you're running from the police and the way that you do it is the gang member who's helping you, who's not a part of your crew, you shut the door behind them so you guys can escape and that guy gets arrested. And so now his whole crew is gonna hate you. But it gave you that extra extra die to maybe escape. And even if you don't escape, the guy's gonna know that you tried to throw him under the bus and it's you're still gonna have that negative consequence. It's such a great little add-on to the system that makes such a huge difference and involves everyone all the time. Now, at the same time, you also have to remember that your default role gets you about a 50% chance of some kind of success anyway. 
So the choice to take a devil's bargain, is, it really is a discussion, and it, a large part of it is how do we want to volunteer drama to the story that maybe otherwise wouldn't necessarily have happened? And that, again, is part of being willing to take certain consequences in order to drive a narrative. Something we didn't mention, if you don't have any rating and a skill or a trait, you roll two dice and take the lowest. But that means that the devil's bargain or spending the point of stress moves you from rolling two dice and taking the lowest to a single dot, which is a huge improvement. And if you don't have stress in order to spend on increasing it, the devil's bargain is, is your alternative, or not necessarily if you want to, if you don't have stress, but if you want to save that stress for later in the adventure, because again, that is your that is your trick. That is your uh, squeeze out at the last minute and grab your hat before the door slams shut. Like that, you need that stress. So be cognizant of the devil's bargain as a tool. And the most you can add in bonus die to a single roll is two. You can spend the stress to get the bonus die from the stress, and you can take the devil's bargain. You can never go beyond that two die bonus. The Devil's Bargain. By yourself. By yourself. By yourself. The Devil's Bargain is both my favorite part of the game. And when I said that I would hesitate to play it with randos, this is the biggest reason why. Because if you don't have a group that likes to tell stories in the same way, I feel it would be pretty easy for, for it to turn into somebody just arguing and trying to bully either the other players or the GM into taking a certain Devil's Bargain. Whereas if everyone is on the same page, this is my actual favorite group storytelling mechanic I've ever seen. There are definitely places in any system where a player or a storyteller who is not operating in good faith can upset the balance. And this is such a point. But again, it can also, it really does contribute. I was just making a point because a lot of the times I don't like those fail points in systems and I try yeah. to remove them. But this is adds so much that it is worth having as that potential fail point because what it adds is awesome. Right? Yep. Well, yep. And also, because of the way the rolling works, where the player says, I want to do this. And you're like, all right, that sounds like this kind of roll. And the GM, before the player roll, says, this is a risky or controlled or desperate. And you have normal effectiveness, or you know, you'll be greatly effective or not as effective or whatever. And they tell you what the kind of consequences are. Before you roll, in the example in the book, a guy goes to intimidate a bartender for protection money. And the GM's like, well, that's pretty desperate and you're going to have reduced effect. And the player is kind of confused until the GM points out like, you're in his bar surrounded by his patrons and you're alone. So, you know, I'm not saying you can't be intimidating to get money out of him, but if it goes wrong, you're surrounded by people who like this guy and who don't know who you are. So it really does try to break a fail point. We've all been in games and we've probably all been in the situation of like, oh, I didn't realize this was the situation, either because I missed the detail or the GM just forgot to describe something in a way. That happens all the time. But because of the setup, they try to mitigate that in Blades in the Dark. You should know roughly what's going to happen, how effective 
objective it's going to be, how bad it'll be if you fail, before you roll. And that leads to the one and only time a GM rolls in this system. It's called a fortune roll. And it's when things happen that affect the story don't necessarily involve a player taking an action. One of the examples that they give is the players start a war between two factions. Now, as the GM, I could just decide which faction I wanted to win, but if the players have skin on both sides and have some relationship with both factions and and I want it to be more fluid, I can make a fortune roll to see which of the two factions in this war we've started crushes the other one, or if it's an even situation and they annihilate each other. I can determine that with a fortune roll. And it can also be anything positive or negative that is up to chance is the idea of it. So the police are looking for you and are rounding up a bunch of people. Make a fortune roll. Do they arrest some innocents? Do you get blamed for it? Maybe. That is the one and only time a GM rolls, and I think it's super neat. So why don't we talk about how you get hurt? We talked about the ways that that can happen to you. Let's talk about the actual system of taking damage. Normally, if you do a roll, the fiction should be pretty clear about if this could result in you being hurt. You're in a sword duel. Well, you know, if you fail, you get stabbed. If you're trying to leap from one roof to another, if you fail, you might fall and hurt yourself. So in that case, a consequence happens to you, and we mentioned that before. You take a level of harm, or maybe your position changes, you, in, you're you leaping from rooftop to rooftop, or you fail. Uh, you don't take damage, but you crash the window, and now you're no longer on the roof, so your position in the race is now a problem. You can do the resistance roll that we mentioned earlier, taking potentially taking stress to, to mitigate the consequence happening to you. If you run out of stress doing this, you get taken out of the game temporarily. If it's in a an action scene, or what they call a score, which is where you're going out and doing a heist or whatever, you're out for the score. But you'll come back later with a trauma condition. Trauma conditions are permanent. They change your character's personality and cause problems for you later. It's things like obsession, paranoia. Or, you know, cold. You just, you don't emote like people do anymore. You're less, you're detached. You're now cruel is another one. Because you can always choose whether you're going to make the resistance roll or not, you always have the option uh, until a certain point. They do say like, it, once you take, I think it's four trauma conditions, you can't take anymore. At that point, you're not a functional person anymore. Well, what I, what I really love about that is it doesn't just kill your character when they get four, but they are no longer stable enough to be a part of your crew. And so right. one of two things has to happen. Either they go into retirement and join the world, and maybe your characters run into them as an NPC later, or you turn them into the cops and they go to jail, but lower the heat rating for your organization. So you have to decide if somebody gets so messed up, whether you're going to let them ride off into the sunset or you're going to throw them to the wolves. And I I think that that's a really cool storytelling decision you have to make. This goes back to part of what I think makes it a, a great beginner player system is you can just send characters off into into the sunset without a huge penalty and it's not incredibly hard to create new characters. In fact, to an extent, it's specifically encouraged. The game is set up in such a yeah, way to encourage that. Yeah, it is baked you are, you are playing a crew and not a character. I mean, you are playing a character, but it is totally expected that if you are playing a long-term game, you are advancing the crew as a whole, and you will, over the course of your long-term game, play multiple characters within a crew. And some 
of your old characters may die, may go to prison. Well, and sometimes they just have to take a score off just to uh, indulge their vices and restock their their stress. Before we get too far away from it, there's something else we should have mentioned yeah. earlier. Sometimes you don't take consequences because you failed to roll. If you are facing a particularly dangerous situation, preemptive consequences. You... Preemptive consequences. The GM can give you a preemptive consequence. You go into the room, you start to fight someone. Turns out they're a master duelist. So the GM, instead of saying, okay, what do you do? The GM starts with, as you draw your sword, they lunge at you and disarm you or stab you through the thigh. Either deal with that consequence or roll to resist it. And that's, that's supposed to be used sparingly, but it is supposed to be a, no, this is very serious. This is a person who is a master of whatever. It's such a cool way of still differentiating between everyday NPCs and NPCs who are really, really dangerous without having to give them stats. And it makes it way easier on GMs because I can throw any number of NPCs at you and I can create an NPC on the spot and decide, is he a regular guy or is he super magic man who is going to do a spell at you as soon as you walk through the door. I appreciate the the variety you could have with this. You're fighting the master duelist. Okay, well, all your effects are reduced because he's a master duelist. He's great at parrying your blows. It's a precarious situation because he's a master duelist. So you're on the defensive immediately. I really appreciate that it's a good way... <clears throat> we used this term before. The ludonarrative... Uh, and Blade to the Dark, which is the cut, the way the mechanics and, and story interact. Uh, this entire game is ludonarrative. I love it. But that's a great example of a preemptive consequence. Another way that you could represent the Master Duelist is with progress clocks. You're either gonna love them or hate I them. I like and I, I agree. It's, it's entirely possible that if you are a experienced storyteller, you already have a system in place where you know how to handle these sorts of things. If you're not, think about progress clocks. They can be a useful visual tool. So the idea of a progress clock is you draw on a piece of paper a little clock with a, a bunch of sections, four sections if it's relatively simple, going up to 12 if it's incredibly complicated. And depending whether or not you're trying to do a good thing or avoid a bad thing, you fill up one of the sections of the clock when you either succeed or have a consequence. So for instance, if you're trying to break into the office before security finds you, there might be a six-face clock that every time you get a consequence, you get one closer to the guard sounding the alarm. And then I might have another clock that is you actually getting caught. So once you have alerted them, you now have four more consequences before they've cornered you and you have to fight or surrender whatever right you may have a clock for the booby traps to get into the room. right they can be both positive or negative they can also be what is called a racing clock which is imagine both you and another crew are after the same prize then you could have a racing clock where if we succeed we add towards the clock and if they succeed they remove sections from the clock and if it ever gets entirely empty they win and if it ever gets entirely full, we win. And whichever size wins gets the prize. So it really is as simple as it sounds. It, usually it's a four, a six, or an eight segment wheel. And you fill things in 
as you go. But it's just a, a good visual tool to help the players understand like, okay, in this example, there are six phases before the alert sounds with the guards. And maybe depending on your situation, you if you fail, you might fail in multiple phases. And this gets used a lot in the system. They're used for, or they're suggested to be used for a lot of- And so this is like one of those, you know, where we said if you roll four or five, you succeed, but there's a consequence. So like if you're sneaking in and you have this alert the guards wheel, if you get a four or five, you might pick the lock you need to do it, but it makes a loud click noise. People are going to hear it and start looking, move the face one forward, right? Right. The guards are a bit more suspicious now. They heard a creak as you walked across the floorboards, move the face one, right? Overall, I really like this. I think the stumbling block that a lot of a GMs are going to have is they can also be used and honestly should be used for any long-term project. You know, it could be, you know, in the example, we're breaking into the bank, how suspicious are the guards, that's one. But just in downtime, you know, I'm trying to convince this gang that we should have good relations and we shouldn't be a problem. That's a long-term action. Uh, so you make a progress clock for that and, and fill it in as you go, which means you can accumulate a lot of these. And even if you're not using them all at once, it's still something you got to file away somewhere. And this is why, as the GM, I get really nervous about progress clocks. Without having sat down and played with them, I can't say whether or not I, I really like them. This is the first mechanic that I've ever read in a book. And I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. I don't know if I love it or hate it. In theory, I think it's really interesting and great but i think it also is the one mechanic here that puts a lot of pressure on the gm and i don't know that i'm okay with like you could easily run into a situation where the gm might have to keep track of a dozen clocks and we might not be filling them all in at this exact moment but i need to remember and store where all 12 of those clocks are at. And I can feel that being a burden. I feel like everyone else here is just hands down excited about the progress clocks, and I am tentatively excited about them. I think it's a great idea. I just don't know if it's an idea that will make me pull out my hair. Well, as Helen pointed out, if you're a GM in another game, you probably already have some kind of system for this. It's just that in Blades in the Dark, it's used for all of your like miscellaneous progress stuff. So, you know, uh, how is everyone's individual downtime stuff going? Well, you're going to track it with the progress clock, which means you're going to get a lot of progress clocks. I don't think the mechanic itself is bad. I just think it's going to get used a lot. If there wasn't a description of the progress clock in the book, we would never think about, oh, well, what will I do in order to manage my booklet of NPCs and keeping track? I mean, this is a faction-heavy game. Keeping track of you know, your various relationships with different factions would be, rather than a clock, it would be the notes that you write to yourself that you check you know, at the, at, at the beginning of the next session just to remind yourself where is the crew standing with the red sashes. Uh, I mean, when I briefly ran a LARP, I had a cork board with push pins and three by five cards that was essentially this. It's just, yeah, I think if we, if they had not introduced clocks, we would never think about it because we all already have that system. You're probably right. I just wanted to say that I thought this was really interesting, but give the caveat of I'm not sure how well it will play out. I think it's a great tool for beginner GMs to give them something to try and make them at least start thinking about 
information organization and scaling and how to process and, and yeah. like all tools i would urge you to use it but not become a slave to it there are certain things where if we were running a game i probably even though it says this is an option i probably would not have a clock for raising or lowering our relationship with every other faction well and the and the book is definitely encourages you to use or discard rules as necessary to support your game's fun and that's this is an excellent example of an opportunity to do that it is the most chill rpg book you will ever and very well written i'm gonna have a lot of things to say about that. oh yeah yeah well well written in tone and the accessibility and the streamlined nature of and the constant reminders that we're here to have fun most very games, important gaming philosophy most games say that once and then never mention it again in the rest of the book uh they say it usually on page two remember uh listen to your gm and have fun here's your slap on the butt now get out there yeah blades of the dark every chapter is like hey we introduced a new rule if this isn't fun don't use it have fun guys Bring snacks. <laughs> the most important rule. Most Bring snacks. Rule. Speaking of introducing new mechanics, rolling together information in Blade of the Dark it works basically the same as every other role with a caveat. Bad things don't happen to you if you fail. The failure condition is you learn the barest minimum information necessary to progress the story. But you can still progress the story. You can still progress the story. You find the clue you need or something to, to like lead you to the next thing. If you do better, you get extra information that's more helpful they really want to streamline getting into the heist getting into the score as they call it and so anything that isn't the action of the score or the action of what your characters do between scores they really try super hard to streamline and this i think is a, a great example of that so when you sit down to make your character in your session zero, or if you're doing it on your own, you guys are going to be making two things. You are each going to be making a character, and then together, you are going to be making a crew. You are going to be making your group of scoundrels. I think it's probably wise to decide on your crew first, but you could do it either way. It just seems way easier to do a crew first to me. You guys decide what type of scoundrels do you want to be. Do you want to be assassins, cultists, drug dealers, thieves... Do you want to be a group of Robin Hoods? Whatever you want to do. And this gives you some base stats and a core ability for your type of crew. I mean, I think you could pick a playbook before your crew. But yeah, you definitely wouldn't want to come up with your character concept sure. before you get both of those in line. Yeah, if you decide you want to be a Robin Hood character who steals from the rich for the poor and you end up like, oh, we're all drug dealers. Like, hmm, and this may not work. I think this for a lot of games, but I think particularly for this game, this should be an open secrets kind of situation. Everybody should make their characters together and everybody should talk about their their character's drama together. And this would be where that happened, picking a playbook and picking a group type. So a playbook is equivalent to a class here. They call it a playbook because they don't want it to be as rigid as a class. It doesn't define how you grow. It just defines where you start. But the playbooks are, you know, do you want to be a magic user? Do you want to be a talker? Do you want to be a thief? Do you want to hit people in the face? 
These are all playbooks. They have much better names. They literally say that a character can switch from one playbook to another through character development. Yeah. So it is truly, like Jared said, this is who your character is at the moment, not who they will forever be. And they make it easy for an individual character to perform multiple roles, both because the actions are so open that somebody with one playbook may still be able to accomplish actions that may be better associated with uh, a different playbook just because they also they have a trait that might in that context work for what they're trying to do uh, but also because there aren't a whole lot of actions and the right out of the gate you're gonna have a maximum of two in a given action at character creation there's four total so right out of the gate even if you only have one die to roll in something, you're still perfectly proficient at it at least 50% of the time, right? One of the things I love about the playbook idea is this overlap between various playbooks. For instance, if you want it to be the engineering playbook, one of the things that you're going to get because you tinker with stuff, you build stuff, you break equipment is you're going to get that wreck action skill, right? And so I could use that in a fight and be effective. And it might, depending on the type of fight, not be quite as effective as the person who has skirmish. But my engineer is still going to be handy in a fight because he's used to breaking stuff. And that feels so much better to me than the really rigid class systems. There's nothing to keep your engineer from taking the skirmish skill. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, they, they make a very big point that anyone can take any of the skill. Even uh, attune is the magical skill. Anyone can attempt to attune and interact with ghosts and stuff. Obviously, the, the whisper playbook is the, the magic user class. They have special things that make it easier for them or less dangerous, and a few ways that let them interact with that, with the world in a unique way. But anyone can be like, I try to summon the ghost or go talk to the ghost or sense if there's some magical stuff around. And even if you don't, like, even if, if you wanted, say, to play a game where everybody had some magical element, you do not at all have to all play Whispers. Each of the playbooks is set up so that there are special abilities within that playbook where you can interact with, a, with supernatural things in some way. Each of the playbooks has, apart from the attune action, a special ability that'll help you in your own way as part of that playbook interact with the supernatural. I really do love the special ability that lets that lets them punch ghosts. That is See, my favorite. I like the special ability for the, the engineer class that you were talking about that's actually called the leech. I like that they can take a special ability that makes them poisonous, which would really go pretty well with having your engineer type, your leech, have skirmish because yeah. they can also exude poison. One of my favorite things about this this game system is what we are talking about here. It doesn't feel like your character is ever going to be faced with a situation that they can't interact with at all. You are never going to be in a situation where two of your players are interacting and two of your players are waiting for the scene to be over, and that makes my heart sing. Yeah. And you're not going to be in a situation where you start out, realize that maybe the thing that you picked isn't exactly what you wanted to do, and then have no way back quickly to quote unquote fix it. If you set up with something and you're, you're not really sure you like it, 
It is easy to grow into a new playbook, and it is easy to maybe just start with what you have and stay in the same playbook, but start buying another another action uh, trait here or there, you'll get where you want to go pretty quickly. There aren't mistakes here. 